Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero, on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you very much, Carolina. I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop. It's the 10th annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. And the topic of today's program, this is part three of this uh, four-part series, is Changing Roles and Responsibilities for Caregivers. Now, this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, Live Strong, the American Cancer Society, Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And it really is because of that collaboration that we have reached so many of you on the call today. And we have on the call today over 3,144 participants. So there's a lot of you on the call, and you come from all over the United States, from all different regions and cities and, and just parts of the country. And we also have international participants from Canada, Jordan, India, Northern Mariana Islands, South Africa, Venezuela, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us on our program today. Now, today's workshop is made possible by support from the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong. And it's my pleasure to introduce my co-moderator for today's program, Dr. Carly Perry. And Dr. Perry is Program Director, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health. And I'm going to turn the program over to Dr. my esteemed colleague, Dr. Perry, who actually is going to say some words of welcome, but also put the program in a context in terms of why we are doing this survivorship series each year. Dr. Perry? Thank you, Carolyn. And let me add my welcome to our invited speakers and to all of the listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. I'm honored to be able to co-host this 10th annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series focusing on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after treatment ends. On behalf of the National Cancer Institute, represented by my office, the Office of Cancer Survivorship, and by the Office of Communications and Education, we're pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and co-funder of this program. The number of participants in this survivorship series and the diversity of countries you represent have grown across the years. While we're gratified by this response, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many survivors, caregivers, and family members, even though cancer treatment is over, the cancer experience is definitely not. There is now a significant body of scientific research to back up what many of you on the call already know, that being a caregiver for someone with cancer can be very stressful. You have to balance your caregiving responsibilities with all the other demands of your life, and many times caregivers feel like their own needs have to come second. Today's presentation focuses on how caregivers can adjust to changing roles and responsibilities in their lives, and we have three outstanding national experts to talk about this topic. Again, I'm delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Dr. Carolyn Messner, and I'll now turn the program over to her. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Harry, for those wonderful words of welcome and also for explaining to everybody why we're doing these programs and how important they are. And I do want to turn everyone's attention for a moment to the materials you received from Cancer Care. In those materials, there's information about each of the collaborating organizations, and there's a wonderful series from the National Cancer Institute called Facing, the Facing Forward series, and it's a wonderful for survivors, and it's a wonderful series. Um, it also has a support for caregivers as well. And um, there's a lot of material there. And there also, and those are resources that you can use both, um, you know, way after this program, after today's program concludes. In addition, we do include an evaluation form, and we very much appreciate your completing that evaluation form. Your feedback is so critically important to us as we move forward in planning our next year's program. Um, we very much depend on, the on choosing the topics from what your recommendations are. Indeed, all the topics for this particular series, this four-part series, were chosen based on your evaluations and what you told us you wanted us to offer. So please do fill out the evaluations, and remember that we do use them to keep these programs most relevant to meet your, your particular needs. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, Suzanne Martz-Dones. Uh, she is a nurse. She's, a, uh, she's going to present the caregiver perspective, and she's administrative nurse manager at Mount Sinai Hospital. And she has spoken on these programs before, and she's going to provide you information about really the caregiver perspective. It's my pleasure to turn the program over to Ms. Suzanne Martz-Dones. Suzanne? Thank you so much, Carolyn. So as Carolyn said, my name is Suzanne. I'm a registered nurse and was the caregiver for my husband, Nelson, while he was battling cancer. My expertise doesn't come from being a nurse, but from my firsthand experience with giving care to my husband while he was battling cancer. So I'm just going to talk briefly about that journey as a caregiver. When my husband was diagnosed with advanced cancer in 2000, it was a devastating time in our lives. It felt like all our hope and dreams were being shattered, and life as we knew it was over. One way I coped was to educate myself. I made it a point of becoming well-informed about his cancer and the treatment process. This helped me know what questions to ask and to communicate with the healthcare team. I felt strongly that to be an advocate for my husband and in order to get the best care for him, I had to be knowledgeable. I took my role as a caregiver and advocate very seriously. I kept track of all of his appointments, test results, medications, billing, and keeping everybody updated. I didn't want my husband to have to worry about any of it. I wanted him to be able to focus all his energies on handling his treatments and doing everything in his power to get better. Traditional treatment unfortunately failed. Um, this was predicted, and a decision was made for my husband to participate in a clinical trial, which involved having a stem cell transplant in Houston, Texas. We lived in New York at the time. So I took a four-month leave of absence from work, and my new challenge was to find housing and new support systems. The good part of traveling to Houston was that I no longer had to try to balance the competing responsibilities of work and taking care of my husband. I can now focus solely on being his full-time caregiver. As time went on and it was apparent that the treatment was now working, the intensity of the appointments lessened, as did my husband's needs for me, and it was time to travel back home and for me to go back to work. Believe it or not, one of the challenges that took me by surprise on my dad was getting back to my so-called normal. All my thoughts and actions had evolved solely around my husband and his illness. And yeah, you celebrate remission, and, but what comes next? After diagnosis and treatment and recovery. So I didn't know what my world was going to look like when I wasn't focused on the next appointment, the next test, next result. For me, this was very confusing. I wanted to be hopeful, but I couldn't help feeling like 
the, the other shoe was about to drop. So finding a new normal wasn't easy for me, but it does happen. For me, the turning point was going back to school for my master's degree. The program I was interested in only enrolled every two years, and I had to make a decision. And it would require a lot of time and effort on my part. I remember asking myself, what if his cancer comes back while I'm in school? A mentor gave me great advice. She asked, what if the cancer doesn't and you miss this great opportunity? You definitely regret it, and you may even have resentment against your husband in the long run. So I took her advice and applied. I sat down with my husband, and I let him know that I now need his support. At first, it was really difficult to concentrate, but as I went through the motions, it became less challenging. It wasn't easy, but I think because of my circumstances, it made the accomplishment worth that much more to me. Since then, I've continued to be able to focus on my career and even taken on new responsibilities. My husband remains in remission and is considered cured from his cancer, and I certainly don't wish what we went through on anybody, but I want to tell you there's absolutely life after cancer for both the survivor and the caregiver. So in closing, I just want to thank all those who have and continue to support us through this journey. It's been very challenging. And thank you all for listening. And I hope that by sharing a piece of my story um, and my experiences that at least one caregiver realizes that they're not alone. Thank you, oh. Carolyn. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Very inspirational and very helpful um, for everyone on the call. And, and your remarks really do inform our program today in many ways. It sets an enormous tone for the program, and, um, and so I appreciate your comments. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Barbara Given. And Dr. Given is um, also a nurse, and she's um, a university distinguished professor, associate dean for research and doctoral program, College of Nursing, Michigan State University. And Dr. Given is um, actually going to address who is a caregiver, changing roles and responsibilities for caregivers when treatment ends, and shifting your focus away from treatment. It's my pleasure to turn the program over to Dr. Given. Thank you, Carolyn. And what a nice uh, presentation, Suzanne. Suzanne uh, has articulated really very well the breadth and the depth of what a caregiver is and who a caregiver is by her sharing her personal story with us. Caregivers, uh, as are defined, uh, are the individuals who help a family member or a close friend or a partner uh, with their health care needs at a time that they are either in a dependent or need some additional support beyond what they can really do. As we define caregiving as we talk about it today, it's an unpaid person often untrained or at least untrained for the purpose of caring for their individual. Even though we're nurses, when we're taking care of a family member, we're untrained for that role. And uh, our science uh, comes far behind that because we care for them emotionally. Caregivers are the heart and soul of the caregiver situation. They're really the hidden healthcare professional. I think we way too often do not uh, value and sense the contribution that caregivers give to the care. I believe in cancer care, over 80% of the care that's given is really given by family members or at least with family member support. Uh, and when I say uh, family members, I'm talking about significant others and partners and uh, friends who are very, very close. 
As you heard from Suzanne's presentation, there are many things that they do to help, from direct care or supervision to social support, advocacy, coordination of care, medication administration, symptom management, uh, nutritional assistance, supervision, concern with adherence, uh, the emotional support, the social support, uh, monitoring all sorts of devices or tubes or equipment, as well as the communication with the healthcare professional. Uh, as one get, reaches the end of treatment, the advocacy role, coordination of care role, monitoring role, and communication with providers reaches a different level than it is during uh, active treatment often. Um, as I said, uh, caregivers are crucial to the success of the cancer experience. Uh, they are an invisible workforce or a shadow care system that uh, healthcare professionals don't acknowledge enough. And so very often healthcare professionals do not acknowledge the family member as a team member, and they really need to do that because the outcomes of patient care really results from the contribution that family members or family caregivers give. Uh, family caregivers are available 24-7 across the care trajectory into survivorship. In our work, uh, family members still reported feeling on call at 12 and 18 months uh, after treatment ended. And, uh, they uh, described thinking that there should be something to do even when uh, care really has uh, de uh, diminished to not very much active to do, but still being there and being available. Uh, there was uh, a study uh, reported recently that indicated that during a cancer experience for solid tumors, that would be colorectal, uh, lung, breast, prostate, and whatever, caregivers actually e uh, care equivalent of three full-time equivalent uh, if someone were working from diagnosis to death or some uh, 6,300 hours of care. Um, at the survivorship conference last week, they announced that there were now 13.7 survivors, and that means family members involved along with them. The role changes, I think we move from uh, when treatment ends into another phase of uncertainty. I think uh, caregivers uh, are very often intensely involved in, during active treatment and at the end of life. But then there's a po when patient, when treatment ends and uh, uh, family members are in survivorship, there could be a post-care letdown where there might still be symptoms occurring but for some individuals' patients, treatment is over and they want the caregiver role to be less. They don't want hovering and they don't want to have uh, such intensive monitoring. On the other hand, there are times when family members feel that, okay, treatment is over and so now it's time for the individual to be independent. So that is a period of time to actually sit down and have another family conference, in my view, and talk about what changes you're expecting to see, what changes have happened over the period of time of treatment for uh, what communication, what relationship, what kinds of support um, family member, the patient wants, or what 
uh, support the family member or the caregiver can uh, continue uh, giving, and that should be discussed openly and not left to chance. I think that uh, too often we forget that uh, we also need family discussions at this point in time, and not just when the diagnosis is made and we're trying to make decisions. So the care at this point, that the caregiver role is more indirect in a supportive way, a problem-solving way, helping to negotiate the system, accessing community resources, uh, trying to help with the financial situation because now you have the leftover bills and insurance claims and to resubmit and submit again. You, the other big transition at this point in time is that uh, more and more when treatment is over, big cancer centers are turning over to primary care, the patient care. So there's less direct care in the cancer centers uh, of, the, of America and more turned over to primary care. And we all have to remember that primary care are not the experts in cancer care. And for any primary care practice, they may only have a few cancer patients at any one time in their practice. So they too need support. And this is where uh, uh, the whole idea of the survivor care plan is important because if the cancer center does a survivorship care plan that includes a family member and has directions for the primary care, it makes it a lot easier. From my view, the caregiver should go to their own primary care provider at the end of uh, active cancer treatment and say, okay, care, uh, active treatment is now over, here am I, let's make sure I'm still in good health. Make sure as a uh, uh, caregiver, you've not lost weight, that you have your screenings up to date, that you have your own health situation there, and there's still stress going on. As I indicated, our caregivers are still uh, stressed and distressed at 12 to 18 months. Uh, the caregiver is also very active in care coordination still in this phase. They may have to deal with specialty pharmacies because the patient is on some new uh, 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 focused drug, some targeted drug, and there's still decisions to be made. I think uh, it is uh, also a very difficult time for uh, caregivers to know what is to be expected to be reported. In other words, what is the range of fatigue or a symptom, shortness of breath, or a symptom of pain, or a symptom that continues on after treatment is over that should be reported and should be reported immediately. The issue for both the patient and the caregiver at this point is that what about recurrence? So they fear recurrence. So it is very important that they understand what is a symptom that is probably still a late effect or an effect that continues on versus a chance of reoccurrence. And that should be very clear and both should know because the worry uh, continues about what that possibility is. So it's very important to ask what the range of symptoms that are tolerable without uh, requiring immediate reporting uh, to the cancer center. Uh, I think we sh you, it's normal to expect uneasiness. It's normal to expect uh, anxiety and fear about this. Uh, I think the other uh, issue that we see for family members at this point is they may be returning to a job, and they may be returning to a job uh, in a more full way, even if they didn't leave the job, 
than during the period of time when they were taking time to go to appointments and uh, being more actively involved in care. Expect that there might be some tensions at the job. Uh, we have uh, caregivers reporting to us on a regular basis that uh, somebody came and took over and didn't want to give up the job or the job was replaced or they found out later that they uh, could get along without them and so there's sort of new challenges in the job uh, when the uh, cancer situation changes. So for the caregiver, it's important to know about what follow-up is needed, what to report, what to do with primary care, uh, what records to keep, how often they need to return. And they uh, still need support and help to be able to do that. Uh, and they feel more anxious because often now their uh, formal care, association even with a formal care, is uh, maybe every three months or even every six months, so they're really far more alone. Uh, they need to make sure they take care of themselves, care uh, in eating and exercise, ask for information. So in shifting the focus away from treatment, I think expect normally that there would be a sense of loss. I think uh, individuals find that it uh, takes some deliberate uh, attempt to return to uh, where they were before, so they may have to reach out to friends they haven't seen for a while. They may have to seek return to social activities, and they've been out of the habit of doing that. So they may really need to do that. I think it is important to celebrate uh, small milestones of accomplishment, but yet not uh, celebrate them so that you're so disappointed if there should be some backtracking, which may only be temporary, but still celebrate the milestones that are there. I think together family members need to reflect carefully on what has changed and reflect carefully on the good that has resulted. Uh, so again, family members sometimes become reconstituted when they haven't been for a while, and so it's important to talk about that. I think uh, read carefully where your family member, your loved one is. You know, or do they still want to be uh, taken care of, if you will? Do they really want to be independent? Uh, what need do they have that is unmet? and sort out the uh, interactive feelings between yourself and the care recipient, if you will, in uh, how, how, what the future is as far as communication and interaction. What did you put on hold that you can now bring back? And are you sad that you didn't bring something back? As somebody that you were disconnected with, and didn't want to be a part of the patient care, now wishing that they could interact with you again and reach out to them. And you may have to take the initiative to do that just because they were unable to be involved in the midst of an active treatment or at dealing with a diagnosis, maybe because they were uncomfortable to talk about it, now would be a good time to reach back out. If there is still care, it may be hard to move on. But remember, there's the mind, the body, and the spirit that is still there, and reconnection might be necessary. There are new sources of support that you might have found um, that happened during the cancer care, so do not give that up. 
I think individuals find it valuable in this time to journal about their situation. People find it valuable to give back to others because others gave to them. And uh, it is probably a good time to think about support groups if support groups had not been a part of that. This whole period may go on for quite a few years, so it's important to take charge at this point. And I think it, that's all I have to say, and I'm turning it back to Carolyn. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Given, for really a very comprehensive view of the caregivers of roles, responsibilities, and, and, and really shifting back um, focus uh, uh, post-treatment. So thank you very much. Really um, excellent. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is founding director, Cancer Supportive Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, Beth Israel, and St. Luke's Roosevelt. And Dr. Fleischman is going to address finding your new normal, setting goals for yourself, and self-care tips and suggestions. It's really my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Fleischman. Yes, thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm, I'm exhausted listening to all this. Um, I know that in our patients, uh, we see caregivers who are uh, just pooped and often put up a really good front because they want to be energetic and capable and helpful, but it is hard work. And like the other um, speakers said, unpaid and under-recognized work. Um, what I've seen over the years in practice is that um, caregivers will say, generally after the fact, after a, a lot of the chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery is over, that things just aren't the same. And I think different people mean that in, in different ways, but the commonality seems to me that their vision for the future has changed. Uh, all of us project into the future. We um, try to anticipate what our life will be like sometimes in the following weeks, the following months, or many years away. But the impact of the illness and all the responsibilities and changes that come with it changes that vision. And um, that's one of the hardest things that I've found uh, my patients and families deal with. Um, getting used to the fact that the only thing that's certain is uncertainty um, is also something that people will um, not often voice uh, right at the beginning, but will often say afterwards in their own words, that we all live with a lot of uncertainty in our lives, but it doesn't smack us in the face um, as at a time when someone in our family is sick and we're doing a lot of the caring and have taken a lot of the responsibility. So the, uh, an example of that will be, um, I've, I've heard many families say after treatment, we were planning to take a vacation this summer, but I wasn't sure if she'd be okay or he'd be okay. So often uh, families just stop planning and, and stop planning completely for the future and don't want to take a risk. Um, as the previous uh, speaker said, is the bigger cost taking the risk? or not taking the risk, because after a few years of not taking risks, when everything is um, status quo, uh, things aren't exactly the same as they were before, but they're good enough and sometimes very close to the way they were before. Lots of opportunities are missed. So what I found patients and families to do the best is to plan for the future with proper safeguards in place. So. If they're making plane reservations on the box that says, do you want insurance, instead of saying no, they'll say yes. 
uh, people will generally travel to places where there are uh, robust medical services rather than to places uh, that are really remote and there are no, there are no medical services. And they'll often uh, take some plans in place. They'll take a list of medications, a list of phone numbers. They'll make it, they'll tuck it away, and they'll go and try to enjoy themselves as much as possible. So I think that planning for the future with safeguards is something I've seen people do very effectively and it can be very helpful. During the treatment process, it often seems that the caregiver um, does not pay attention to themselves, their basic medical care, the kinds of things that they need to do like uh, mammograms and pap smears and all the other things that we do for health maintenance. But often what I find is that caregivers don't get any physical activity at all. And for uh, peace of mind, uh, as we said before, physical health, spiritual health, health, emotional health, what it's it seems that caregivers can really stand for the long haul if they carve a part of the day for themselves, and that could, should be, uh, if at all possible, some kind of physical activity. Doesn't need a fancy gym with an expensive personal trainer, although that's nice, but it could be just a matter of walking, uh, walking even inside a house, um, walking around to get your heart rate up a little bit and to um, get a little bit of uh, time away from the caregiving role in something that will give you some, some physical activity. People generally don't like to, to ask for help, and uh, this is a time when you really do need to ask for help. So what I've also seen families do effectively is really call in their favors and ask people who they have helped in the past or people in the community who are offering to help, people in their church or their synagogue, their neighbors down the block, saying yes, can you please help me with so-and-so? Remember you asked if you could help me out. Um, can, would you mind making something for dinner? I can slip in the oven you know, next Friday because that's when I'm going to need some help. Knowing help is available is really important, and knowing the people you can rely on is extremely vital in this process. And um, at times, there are not as many people who you can call in favors from, or at times, we need to rely on professional paid caregivers. So it is important to really know what is in your insurance policy, what kind of coverage um, that you have that can pay for some help. Many people totally misunderstand this. They believe that um, Medicare um, will pay for a lot of these services. They don't, um, but there are agencies in the community um, that can help. Sometimes friends and families will take shifts, even if they are or aren't nurses, as was said before, but as helpful family members um, being a family member. But people are, are, are really, really need to make sure that they know who's around, what's around, and where they can reach for help. Delegating is often something that is very, very hard for us to do. So um, it seems that these are the kinds of activities and the kinds of way of thinking about things in this area of uncertainty, or as um, other speakers have said, uh, a new normal, where you can plan to some extent, you can um, get everything done, and also carve out a little time for a little renewal so that you can stay in for the long haul. Uh, I'll stop here and hand it back to Dr. Messner. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fleischman, for just an excellent presentation, very comprehensive. And we now have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Carolina if you could explain to the audience how to queue up for questions, and we'll take as many of your questions as possible. Carolina? 
Thank you. If you wish to ask a question at this time, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to withdraw your question, please press the pound key. We have a question from Diane H. Please go ahead. Hi, um, yeah, my name is Diane, and I, I came in listening to Susan Mardstones, and I thought that was fabulous, a presentation. And I'm pretty much in her footsteps, almost I, the same. And when I'm, um, this is like a personal question, Suzanne. Where did you, what field of interest did you continue your master's in? Because that's where I'm struggling with. I'm not quite, i, I got to get back in school because I went through cancer myself and I discovered my mom's um, cancer and been her caregiver, so it kind of ran all together. So now I need to get back for my master's, and I know that. So I'm just curious. Well, thank you. That's a wonderful question and a bit of a career-pathing question. I'm going to ask Suzanne if she would just adjust in a general way because uh, hopefully we can, this can be helpful to you and, how, what a wonderful first question uh, that you asked. Thank you. Right. So for me, when my husband was first diagnosed, I was actually finishing up my bachelor's. I had an associate's. I was at the tail end. So it was just a matter of wrapping up those loose ends and then just making the decision about whether I can go forward because this was an 18, 18 credit a year uh, program when I was going to work full time. And just um, it, was con it was in healthcare administration and nursing and healthcare. Um, but the hard part was just deciding that and giving myself permission, really, to uh, put the attention towards me and away from my husband. So I hope that helps. Um, excellent. And um, and actually, does anyone else want to comment on that? It's an important question, mm -hmm. and just in terms of just that whole making that decision about the career switch. Um, Dr. Given, Dr. Fleischman, Dr. Perry, any of you would like to add anything to that? Because it's, it's a really great question. It's a, a transition question in terms of now, what, what do I do now? Next. Dr. Given, do you want to? Uh, some points in our life, we often think about changing uh, our job or what we do, but it's often uh, a major incident in the family that spurs us on to do it. Excellent. So the, the hard thing is then moving ahead and doing it is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, and so we wish you well in doing it, and you have some good role models here, so we hope that that will be something that you'll get support with. And you also can work with our staff at Cancer Care as well to get support in moving ahead. So thank you. And our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from Elise F. Please go ahead. Yes, hi. Um, I would uh, like to see if anybody feels the way I'm feeling. My husband is a 26-month uh, bone marrow transplant survivor. Um, we just had his two-year biopsy, and uh, he is in remission, and uh, he's 100% donor-infused, and uh, there is no leukemia. But he's having, um, a, um, I guess, offshoots of, of the transplant known as graft-versus-host disease. And... Um, the, the treatments, unfortunately, are not over, and I'm actually finding caregiving, in a sense, more difficult right now, two and a half years out since diagnosis, than I did at times when um, I made the trip uh, like Suzanne did uh, for four, uh, four months uh, up to uh, um, Moffitt Cancer Center. Uh, and I actually found that easier because I think I had more of a support base when we were close by with the cancer center and I found things at that time easier than I'm finding it right now because the treatments have gotten, in, in some ways, uh, more intense. 
then they were uh, in a different way uh, when the diagnosis and transplant actually took place. And I was wondering if anybody two and a half years out or further out uh, has felt that sometimes caregiving is harder than it was initially. Well, that's such an important question. May you ask where, what part of the country you are in um, that you're in right now, where you are? Florida. I'm sorry? Florida. Florida. Okay. All right. So you're still in somewhat near to Moffitt at this point? Uh, about four hours away. Also, oh, it is a bit of a distance. Okay. Well, I, that's a wonderful question. I'm going to ask Dr. Fleischman if he would start by addressing that question because that's so important and I suspect you're definitely not alone on this call. And um, so, Dr. Fleischman, could you address sure. this? That, that's an important point because uh, although uh, the um, acute part of the treatment is over, we know that patients are left with a number of mild, moderate, or sometimes even severe late effects of the treatment or of the cancer. And as, as we're going through the process of treatment, we sort of put a milestone at the end of treatment as when things will change. But the caregiving and the, um, the, the kinds of things that we deal with don't go away when treatment is over, and graft-versus-host disease is one thing that can linger and require a lot of additional treatment. Um, I, I guess what always strikes me about uh, going through this with patients and families is that you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know when the graft-versus-host or any other of the other lingering side effects is going to slow down or is going to be, be calm and quiet so you can take a breath of fresh air, and that seems to be the, one of the biggest stressors that, that I find. I would like to make a comment that you are very normal in what, what's happening at uh, phases like this and that it does become difficult. And the other thing that makes it difficult is um, that other people believe that everything's okay. You started by indicating about where the disease was, the disease per se. So if friends or people around you hear that or think about that, they think that things are fine. So this is the time, I think, to actually call in some resources that have not been around for a while. But it is also normal for family members to disappear. Uh, so in our work, we found that in intensive and active treatment, family members would stay around for three, maybe even four months. But after that period, any intensity that they had disappeared, even though the need was there. But then when there is a continued need, it's almost like you have to start all over again in building the resources and gathering them and garnering them. And so I think we need to be more deliberate during active treatment saying, I don't need 10 casseroles, I don't need 10 people volunteering now to do the driving, save it, and I want to call, be able to call on you later because it is common what you describe, a year, two years. It seems to be uh, what I've seen in the studies that talk about uh, long-term caregiving and whatever, about 4.6 years that caregivers are pretty intensely involved in much of our treatment today. And, you know, many people find it very helpful to, at that point when things have changed in a way that you didn't expect, but it is quite, these are very normal in the cancer world and survivorship world to join um, a survivorship support group, um, whether it be a group that's in your community, a face-to-face -face group um, led by a social worker or a nurse, or to join either a telephone support group led by a professional. There also are, of course, um, other 
groups as well, but a professional, sometimes social worker, will lead these groups, and also um, an online support group. And at Cancer Care, we do offer both telephone and online support groups. They're free, and they're, many people find them helpful because you're with other people from actually different areas um, of a country, and you're able to, on the telephone groups, to really talk to each other on a specific time. And on the online groups, you really are able to post actually day and night, and the facilitator will, and everybody will kind of respond to each other's posts on a regular basis, and people get that kind of 24-hour kind of coverage and support all the time. So many people find those groups helpful as well, but it really depends on your comfort with technology and, and what your preference is around that. So um, that's important to know. Um, and Suzanne, do you want to add anything here as well? No, I, I could definitely identify and I could see how that could happen. Um, when I finally went back to school, it was from the time my husband was diagnosed, that was 2000, and this was 2004, so it was four years later even, and it was still just such a diff difficult decision. Um, there was still some uh, health issues, but they were, you know, manageable enough. Um, but, yeah, I definitely think it's a great idea to get more support to remind family members, like um, the earlier speaker talked about sitting down the family again, it's probably a good time to do that and let them know. They probably have no clue how you're feeling. And Dr. Perry, did you want to add something in terms of just the wonderful resource of the National Cancer Institute and its materials and to help people with some of, the, some, um, of these issues as well? Absolutely. I believe, Carolyn, you've already really highlighted some of the materials in Facing Forward that would help people with that. And, of course, this is an important priority area in our research as well. So um, we definitely would like you, actually, um, I certainly will talk with, with you after the call, and we would definitely encourage you to take advantage of these support programs that are out there for you um, and to really um, consider them as a resource so that you're not feeling like perhaps everyone else is saying, oh, you have to do this by yourself, but we're saying, no, we want you to be a part of, we don't want you to do this alone, we want you to know that you're part of the support community and, and get help from all of us. And um, our next question, uh, Carolina? Our next question is from Karen M. Please go ahead. My name is Marge. I'm a, almost a six-year breast cancer survivor. I yes. have a question. Yes. I know how important it is to treat the whole person, mind, body, soul, and spirit. What I would like to know is a little more about the spirit, what it is, and what it does. Thank you. Well, that's a wonderful question, Marge. Thank you. Um, Dr. Fleischman, do you want to start with that? Well, that's a hard question. Um, although I'm not uh, formally trained in uh, spirituality, spirituality has um, improved the way we give medical care quite a bit. To me, uh, as a, in a personal way, spirituality is what's behind everything else that we do, the motivation, and gives us the perspective on what we do. In medicine, again, both as a practitioner and as a patient, because we're all patients at one point, uh, our spirit and belief is often what allows us to keep going even when the facts are unclear, because we have a belief that what we're doing is the right thing. I bet that if we got a clergy person in here, they could do a lot better than that. But as a provider and a patient, <laughs> that's how I see it. <laughs> okay. And others would like to comment on that, that whole spirit, the whole spirit of the person. Uh, 
There are a couple uh, articles that have come out recently that show that for caregivers, uh, that when caregivers take time to think either existentially or spiritually, including religion, if we want the formal religion to be involved, it really does help them with coping and their depression lasts uh, less, a shorter period of time, and less anxiety if they can, if they indicate that they have a spiritual dimension that's helped them get through it. So they have to self-identify that spirituality or uh, existentialism is important to them. And so it shows that as a, a, another resource that's important to get through this. And um, Suzanne, do you want to comment on this? No, thank you. <laughs> Um, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, many times um, uh, caregivers will actually begin to think about the, how important perhaps a, a spirit community could be for them, um, that getting involved with others, um, whether it be faith-based or whether it be a, a group that can just offer them support in a way that boosts, helps them spiritually, actually, um, many different perspectives in terms of people's spirituality. And so it is a time sometimes for exploration because um, these communities often offer tremendous support to people, and it is a time when one needs support. It's interesting that we did get an email um, just now from one of our listeners who actually said, uh, actually in their email, um, to please share um, um, our caller about the graft versus host disease. Please share that you are not alone. Um, you know, you think, you think things are better, but then you get surprised. Um, and so wanted to offer her support uh, to, uh, to you. And I think that kind of support from each other is so very important, that kind of um, knowing that there are other people there to, to support you um, and to support your spirit, you know, that sparkle that allows you to actually, um, you know, to, to deal with all the different um, items that life brings our way, all the different challenges along the way. So thank you. That was a wonderful question. We hope this helped. And our next question, uh, Carolina. Thank you. We have a question from Kelly C. Please go ahead. Um, hello. I was just wondering if Suzanne or maybe one of the other speakers could just talk a little bit about, um, from a personal um, perspective, anything that social workers or other community supports did or said that was particularly helpful, um, especially in some of the um, later stages, like finding the new normal. Um, I think the advice that everybody's given um, regarding taking care of yourself, it really, when you're so intensely taking care of somebody else, it's really hard to pay attention to yourself and your needs, and you tend to exhaust yourself. Um, so even just taking good care of yourself, taking time out to walk away and do something that you enjoy. My sisters used to drag me out for walks and to the movies and to whatever, um, I'd go kicking and screaming, but I went. It was the best thing I could have done because I would have burned out a lot sooner. Um, and just to speak up, um, a lot of social workers and the physicians even told me that, you know, try to keep some kind of normalcy. Um, used to drag my husband out of bed into the shower, get dressed, even when he didn't feel like it. Um, but then, you know, we'll try to play board games. Like just keep some kind of normalcy in the routine while you're going through it. And then when it comes time to transitioning away from all that, um, to do more and more for yourself and give yourself permission. And 
I sat down with my husband and we had to talk about it because I think that was a really good point. I, I did it without really realizing that I was doing it, that you really have to talk about it and consciously plan how you're going to do it. Um, not that life won't change what you have planned, but at least if you have intentions to move forward it's, and you start going through the motions, um, you'll go ahead and do that. Otherwise, you just won't move. You'll, you'll stay frozen. So I think that was really good advice. Thank you, Suzanne. And Barbara, do you want to add to that? Uh, I think that um, the, the giving the permission uh, mm -hmm. is is really important. And but we have people tell us that if the permission to do that is given in the very early phase, that the, uh, individuals do that, both patient and caregiver, do things normal or try to have some normalcy than if they think they shouldn't. So uh, if you have a really good professional working with you who brings it up at early on that this is part of what is important, you can't become a victim to the fact that you never, like my sister, you never go to church, you whatever, you think you have to stand there, go to church, go out, go for a drive, go to lunch, whatever. So if people start out believing that it's fine to do, then all the way through that becomes a much more of a pattern and being delivered. So what I see is helpful is a professional that tells people that early in the uh, trajectory. And Dr. Fleischman? Yeah, I was thinking about a family I met many years ago where the caregiver was starting to feel burnt out and needed a little time for herself. and. She didn't have that discussion with her husband, and the husband felt that she was turning away from him because he, she knew something about his illness, and it, mm. he believed that she knew that he wasn't going to do well, and she was preparing for him to get sicker and sicker. Well, actually, he was doing fine, mm. uh, but still needed care and still needed attention, but she was just trying to reclaim some time for herself so she could stay in it for the long haul. Oh, that's so important. I think that whole concept of being given permission and many, it's very hard as a caregiver sometimes to carve out that time for yourself as everyone has said and to even think of actually seeing someone or, or talking to someone who actually is, the whole focus is on you um, because so often for, as a caregiver your focus is on that other person, the person that you love who um, is dealing with cancer or as a survivor. And so, I, was, I was actually going to say that because oh, yes. this is Suzanne. I was just thinking, you, you're actually, this is a post-traumatic stress situation. Um, anybody who's gone through a life-threatening illness, I, I guarantee you're experiencing post-traumatic stress, both the patient and the caregiver. And any kind of counseling and help you can get with that is, I think is really helpful. And, and that is so important. I think that what Suzanne has said is so important. And, and sometimes it's, you know, taking that time for yourself is important. And I think the concept of your being given permission often by the social workers you see, the oncology nurses you see, the physicians, the healthcare team, letting you know that it's okay for you to take some time for yourself. And also to do it sometimes in a, in a, in a way that's scheduled so you have regular meetings with someone in which the focus is on how are you doing. Um, that's really important as well, and just supporting you. That's, that's so important. Do we have another question, Carolina? We have a question from Elise F. Please go ahead. Yes, with reference to uh, Carolyn talking about telephone support groups, I participated in a telephone support group uh, with Cancer Care 
when my husband was first diagnosed with uh, Chrissy Rubin, and it was very, very helpful. As a matter of fact, I still keep in touch with some of the people that were uh, in that group. Uh, however, I have not seen any support groups through cancer care like that uh, for the time frame I'm in now. Uh, if there is anything like that, Carolyn, I would be very much interested in that. Oh, well, thank you, Elise, for your question. And um, so I'll just it's a good time just to kind of say a little bit about all the different services that we have. Um, we do have uh, support groups both for people, for caregivers who are, for people who are in active treatment as well as for caregivers who are post-treatment and who are in, in survivorship. So we, we and I will be sure to talk after the call. I also want to let you all know that we do have a program actually next week, again, another program on caregivers because caregiving is such an important area. It's next Friday. We have another program uh, on focusing on the caregivers' needs because I would say for cancer care and for many of the nonprofit organizations that I've mentioned, all the organizations and the, and, and the NCI as well, I would say over half of the people who call us are caregivers requesting help, often requesting help for someone else, but really we recognize that the caregiver themselves needs support, um, and that's, that's so important. I'm going to ask actually our, uh, our other uh, speakers to kind of address the fact that um, why the issue of the, the, the the, uh, the person with the survivor is actually getting a fair amount of attention from the healthcare team. But what about the caregiver? Does anyone want to comment a bit more about that? Dr. Fleischman, would you like to start? Oh, um, I think I think you you said it pretty much. Uh, the caregiver often steps into the background because the patient is front and center. But it really uh, is a situation where the caregiver needs to understand that they're still important. Uh, the needs will change. Um, some needs may go on. Some needs may increase. It's hard to tell, but the family's in it together. And I, again, I use the term family like before, as in very close friends, um, as well as family members. Um, things keep changing, and it's it's your team. And, and Dr. Given. Well, I I am still on my bandwagon, which I've been for a very long time, is that the uh, healthcare team needs to do an assessment of the family member at the point that they're working up the plan of care treatment and then certainly follow-up of the caregiver to be involved. And at one point, the American Medical Association had a caregiver assessment that they had on their website that they said should be done with every patient, and it came out of the primary care docs. It has disappeared. It is no longer there. So we still have to work on the bandwagon of saying, here, I'm here too, and you really need me. I think uh, when the uh, patient outcomes are, uh, they're now starting to pay, the federal government is starting to pay for Medicare and Medicaid based on patient outcomes. When everybody suddenly realizes that for the physicians and nurses to achieve the patient outcomes, family members have to be included or they're not going to be able to achieve them, then I think uh, we will see that family caregivers are going to be an important and an integral part and an assessment is going to happen and people are going to worry about their health, their well-being, their burden, their anxieties and whatever. But I think that's still a little ways away. Well, I think that bandwagon is definitely rekindled here. I think everybody on this call certainly would agree with you on that. That's so important. And Suzanne, do you want to comment as well? 
I was just thinking that um, all the direct caregivers, um, as far as nurses and doctors, their interests seem, when I was going through it, was really my husband. I think the healthcare team did a great job of including me in decision-making, and I rounded with them and everything, and I kind of stepped up, too. I didn't give them a choice. But um, I think after the fact, the attention to the caregiver is less and less, even though the patient still has to go to follow-up appointments and everything periodically and screening. I think for me it's been self-care, reaching out when I need it, and also getting involved with like organizations like Cancer Care, and I do all these cancer walks. And just for me, I get support in being around people that have been there, so with other survivors and their caregivers and, you know, just, just and, you know, it's still very emotional when I, when I go to one of these walks and I'm surrounded by thousands of people who have been in my shoes or, or about to be or um, I'm very touched by it and always reminds me of what, what I went through and, all the support I got, and so I don't think, um, I, I guess just reaching out, continuing to reach out to the organizations like Cancer Care, and for me it was Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and things like that, um, just to stay in touch and to ask for help when you need it. That is such an important note for everyone on this call. Um, you know, as we conclude our program today, I want to thank all of our speakers but I think that what what you've just said, Suzanne, is so important that really um, to really reach out really to um, to that for help all the, whenever it's needed. And I want to remind everyone. I also want to thank all of you who've queued up and asked such great questions. Um, you know, I want to remind you that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour program. So I just want to remind all of you of the services that you can access from Cancer Care. Um, we have a staff of 40 master's level trained oncology social workers, and we're here to provide a host of services, um, from practical and financial assistance to counseling to support groups, both on the telephone and online, as well as all types of resources um, for you, materials, um, and, uh, of course, also um, uh, our website. But most importantly, um, we are simply a phone call away, um, the 1-800-813-HOPE. And you also have the resources of all the other organizations that collaborated with, to make this program possible today, particularly the National Cancer Institute and all their resources, um, their Cancer Information Service, so all the different resources on the call today. Most importantly, we don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping as a caregiver and as a caregiver of a survivor or, or with any issues and concerns or problems that come up during this caregiving time or during survivorship. We want you to know that you're part of a community of support and we are here to help you um, so that um, you're now part of this community and just give us a call when you need help. Now, I do want to remind you that we do have a part uh, three of this program, a part four rather of this program, uh, managing post-treatment neuropathy on July 17th. And I also want to encourage all of you to send in your evaluation so that we can really utilize your feedback so that we plan a program next year that will be as useful to you as possible. And I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may disconnect. Have a wonderful day.